Good morning, church. All right, so stoked to be with you guys. So excited to get in the scriptures. Let's open up to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. Uh, As you're going there, I want to mention we've got that course coming up, Perspectives. Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. Uh, I took that course a few years ago when we offered it here at the church. I was in it as a student. And I've taken a lot of classes in my life. I graduated from Carpentry High and then UCSB, and I've done postgraduate work in theology. I've taken a lot of different classes. I could honestly say before you that Perspectives was the single most impacting class I've ever taken in my life. It had the greatest impact on me as a person and as a Christian over any other course I've ever taken, including postgraduate theological studies. So I would really encourage you guys... um, Gosh, I had, a, I had dinner the other night, my wife and I, with a pastor from Uganda. Just an incredible man of God, and, and the Lord's doing amazing work in him and through him in Uganda with widows and orphans and, uh, man, people getting delivered from demonic oppression, and he's preaching and planting churches. Just a glorious guy, and, and he wanted to have dinner with us, and he said to me at the end of dinner, he said, Pastor Britt, here's why I wanted to have dinner with you. I, I, I think I have a message for you and your church. The coming of the Lord is near. So be all about the kingdom of God. Man, I received it. I have the same sense that the coming of the Lord is near. And it's not the time to be on the sidelines. It's not the time to be on the bench. It's not the time to be all caught up in introspection and self and my junk. Man, it's time to be about the business of the Lord. God is on mission in the world around us and right here in our world. And that course, Perspectives, is wonderfully eye-opening and encouraging and engaging and helps propel us into mission here in the coastlands and in the world. So I really encourage you guys to take it. Very, very mature Christians who have been Christians for decades will glean much. New Christians will glean much. I want to encourage you guys in that. Okay, we are in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15. The title of this message is Assurance and Confidence in Christ. Assurance and Confidence in Christ. You. I like that. All right, let's read 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13, reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these glorious truths before us. And we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would teach us these truths and you'd form our lives according to these truths, that we have great assurance of our salvation in Christ. And we have great confidence in approaching the Father through Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for sinners once and for all to give us an introduction, bring us before, bring us into the presence of the Father. Thank you for that glorious work. We ask that it wouldn't be lost on us. 
Lord, you know our lives and our distractions, and yet there's this real sense among us that you're moving, you're active, and even that your return is at hand. And so we want to be found busy about the Father's business. We want to live lives bigger than our own drama. We want to live for your glory. And so embolden us today, encourage us, inspire us by your spirit and the wonderful assurance that we have and in the confidence that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. And help us to be faithful to live out these truths. We ask it together with great expectation in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> you guys know how life is, right? Life has ups and life's has, life has downs. There's good times and there's bad times, right? This is the way life is. And sometimes you feel like you're on top of the world and sometimes God feels so near and so present. And other times you feel like you're just in the bottom of the gutter. And God seems so far and even distant. Sometimes we see the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and we find ourselves walking in obedience and holiness and we feel like, yes, God is actually alive in my life. He's transforming me, conforming me to the image of Jesus. It's evidential, it's tangible, it's so cool. Other times it feels like, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I'm thinking this way again or feeling that again. I can't believe that I'm caught up in this. And we can wonder, where where is God? Where's the power of God? Where's the transforming work of the Holy Spirit? Is God even real in my life? And in the ups and downs of life, I find myself sometimes, maybe not you, but I do sometimes, asking myself two questions. How do I really know that I'm saved. So I don't always feel it, and I don't always live it, if I were to be honest. Sometimes I wonder, how, how do I really know that I'm saved? And then other times, I must confess, oftentimes I ask the question, why do so many of my prayers seem to go unanswered? The biggest prayers I've ever prayed in my life have seemed to go unanswered. These are big questions. This is tough stuff. This is the stuff that is addressed by the Apostle John in this text. He's telling us here at the end of the book that God wants us to be secure and have assurance in our salvation that we have in and through Jesus Christ. And that God wants us to have bold confidence in prayer. Sometimes I don't feel saved. Sometimes my prayers seem to go unanswered. But the text would say otherwise. What does this text say about the assurance of salvation and the confidence that we have before God in prayer? Well, firstly, in verse 13, once again, it says, these things I have written to you who believe, he's writing to believers, he's writing to us, in the name of the Son of God, In order that, here's why I've written the book of John, he says, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote the book. You must understand, Christians, that God wants us to be secure in our salvation. 
He really does. God doesn't use relational tactics. He doesn't want us to feel as though sometimes we're on the outs and our standing before him is tenuous so that we'll get things straight and act better before him. You know, we do that with one another, don't we? Avoidance and we'll give people the cold shoulder and we'll hold ourselves aloof sometimes or we'll punish them with our silence thinking if I make them feel insecure in this relationship, maybe they'll shape up and act how I want them to shape. Aren't you act how I want them to act, whatever. Aren't you glad that God is nothing like you? Aren't you glad that God is nothing like me? He's altogether different. Even in our lowest moments, even in our greatest failures, he wants us to feel secure in our relationship with him. He wants us to have assurance in our salvation. He is, after all, a loving father. And we are but children. And the father doesn't want to create insecurity in his sons and daughters. He wants to create great security that would bring joy to our lives. The scriptures represent God as steadfast and faithful and trustworthy not as capricious and moody and unpredictable. He wants us to be confident in the relationship that we have with the Father through the saving work of Jesus Christ. So that's why John has been writing. And what John has been saying in this epistle is that salvation is both particular and evidential. Particular and evidential, okay? This has to do with the assurance of salvation. Salvation is particular. It has to do with right belief. You cannot believe just anything and be saved. That's not how it works. The world sometimes claims that, but scripture is contrary to that. Salvation is particular. You must believe a particular thing concerning Jesus Christ. And the idea of belief and faith in scripture is not just to intellectually agree, it's to put the full weight of our life and well-being in his identity and his work for salvation. We, we must believe particular things about Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the pre-existent second person of the Trinity who has always been. But who, because of the love of God, draped himself in humanity and was born of a virgin? Who lived a perfect, sinless life? Who died a horrific death on the cross in our place to pay for our sins? Who then three days later rose from the dead and in so doing conquered sin, death, and the devil? and ascended unto heaven to the Father's right hand where he is seated in glory and sent the Holy Spirit to be poured out on the church that we might be his missionary people and is alive and at work in the world and is coming visibly, physically again to earth to establish his kingdom. That is the particular thing that we're to believe about the identity and the work of Jesus Christ as it pertains to salvation. Assurance in salvation is particular. 
We believe rightly about Jesus. And that's why John wrote the book, because there were those who were believing wrongly about Jesus, and he wrote to correct those misunderstandings. But salvation is not only particular. Salvation is evidential. Christianity does not only involve right belief, it involves right behavior. Salvation is not only particular in doctrine, it is evidential in the way that we live. And so John, in wanting to clarify this, because of theological and relational waters had been muddied by those who were misunderstanding Jesus in the context of 1 John, wanting to clarify this, he has given us throughout the book, over and over, because John, like any good preacher, is fond of repetition. He's given us over and over three tests for salvation here in the book of 1 John. You'll remember these when we put them up. First, he gave us the belief test, right? That has to do with believing rightly about Jesus and putting our faith in the right Jesus, the Jesus that we just spoke of as described in the Bible. Do you believe that Jesus is the only unique son of God who came in the flesh? That is the contention of the book. There is a doctrinal or belief test to see whether or not we are truly saved. Can't be saved if you deny the work of the cross, his resurrection of the dead, his preexistence, his coming again. Those are essentials to the identity of Jesus Christ. So he talked to us about the belief test. And then he gave us the behavior test. This is where it gets difficult because it's one thing to believe, it's another thing to behave. Can somebody say, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. It is one thing to believe. It is another thing to behave. And he gave us a behavior test. And he talked about it in terms of righteousness and love. He said there are lots of imposters. There's lots of counterfeit believers. There's lots who claim to follow Jesus. But those who are truly in Christ are not only going to believe rightly, They're going to behave rightly as it pertains to righteousness and loving one another. Righteousness and loving. And that's the third test, the brotherly love test. So the righteousness test is, do you desire to live correctly in a way that glorifies God? If you do, that is evidence of your new birth. And the brotherly love test is, do you love other Christians? If you're desiring and endeavoring to love other Christians, that is evidence of the new birth, evidence of a new heart within you. Now, where is John getting these things? How bold to say, listen, if you're really a Christian, it's going to have to do with right doctrine and right behavior, righteousness and love within the family of God. How bold? Where did he get these things? He got these things from Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 3, if you believe in me, you shall be saved. That was a doctrine test and who he is revealed to be in his life and ministry and work. Jesus said in John 14 then, if you love me, you will obey me. It means nothing to say, oh, I love the Lord. Oh, she loves the Lord. If this is true, Jesus said, there will be some behavioral evidence, 
That's what John has been pressing upon us. That's why this book has been so challenging. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to behave. And then finally, Jesus said in John 13, the greatest evidence in the world that you belong to me, church, will be your love for one another. By, all, by this, all men will know that you are mine. If you have love for one another, he said in John 13, 35. So Jesus laid out the parameters of faith, obedience, and love. John's not making it up. He got it from our Lord himself. Now here's what we need to understand. We need to understand the connectivity, the connectedness of these two things. And we'll say this statement. Right belief in Jesus or faith forms or creates right behavior. Right belief in Jesus or saving faith forms and creates right behavior. Again, right behavior is the evidence of right belief. You get that? Right behavior is the evidence of right belief. The evidence of the presence of saving faith. This has been the purpose of 1 John. That we might know that we have eternal life. Because they were living in a world much like ours. With theologically muddy waters. They were living in a pluralistic culture. Where there were all sorts of competing truth claims about all sorts of different gods. Who can say which religion is true? Who can say who's right and who's wrong? They were living in a culture of popular misunderstandings about Jesus, as we are. Their world was very much like our world, and John was very concerned because salvation is particular, and it is evidential. And so those opponents who he's been writing to in the book of 1 John that we've gotten to know a little bit, because of their wrong belief about Jesus, they had big claims, but they proved to be counterfeit believers. They didn't pass the test of righteousness and brotherly love. And again, what this is pressing upon us is that there should be evidential distinction in the life of the believer. We should be salt and we should be light. There should be evidential distinction. Have you guys ever read the book Unchristian? Unchristian, that's that, nobody? Nobody, Nancy, you've read that book. God bless you. (laughs) Unchristian, a guy who goes to our church, wrote that book, Dave Kinnaman, along with Gabe Lyons. It's a wonderful book. And it talks about in that book how the vast majority of not yet Christians who know Christians say that they see no difference in the way their Christian friends live. No difference whatsoever. So it becomes a a, a sort of life hurdle for them to believe the message about Jesus Christ. Because we claim great things. I mean, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who because of the love of God draped himself in humanity, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil, ascended unto glory, is seated on the throne, and is coming again. Like we claim big things because that's what the Bible says. And so people ought to see significant difference in our lives is what John is saying. Faith, obedience, and love. Right belief forms and creates right behavior. 
John is telling us to get Jesus right, to get life right, and relationships right. Now, without trying to let us off the hook, let me be fair and clarify something here. We are not talking about Christian perfectionism. John is not saying that the born again man, woman, or child will cease to sin in this lifetime altogether. That's not what he's saying. He's made that abundantly clear. He said to believers, right? He says here in this verse, I'm writing to believers. He said earlier on in chapter one, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Even as born again. If we say that we have no sin, we're calling God a liar. But if we take the opposite view and we recognize and realize that we still struggle with sin even though we have a new nature and we've been born again, that we will confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And he said in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing to you so that if any of you sin, you'll know that you have an advocate with the Father. An advocate, one who is on your side and pleads your case, Jesus Christ. An advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, who is a propitiation for our sins. Christ the righteous. So this claim and these tests of righteousness and love, these behavioral tests, are not saying that we're to experience Christian perfectionism or entire sanctification. That doesn't seem to be what the New Testament teaches. We're not talking about sinless perfection, but we are talking about transformed progression. Let's think about that for a minute. We're not talking about sinless perfection. Let's not falsify the expectations. We are talking, though, not to let us off the hook now, to be faithful to Scripture. We are talking about transformed progression. That there should be this evidential ever happening change going on in us by the power of the Holy Spirit where we're being conformed to the image of Christ. We should be able to look at our lives and though there's ebbs and flows, okay, it's not dealing with the highs or the low lows here. It's talking about the general tone and the tenor of our lives. If we have right belief in Jesus and so have repented of our sins and been born again, there should be some consistent evidence we're able to look back and say, wow, by God's grace, by the work of his Holy Spirit, with the help of the word of God, I look a little more like Jesus now than I did then. I have a greater desire to obey him now than I once had. I have a deeper love of the brethren now than I once had. These truths, this right belief, is having a practical, tangible effect in my life. There ought to be progression. It's called sanctification. We must understand about sanctification that it is both an event and a process. It is both a moment and a lifetime sanctification is. It is an event. The moment we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ... We are born again, made brand new, sanctified, so to speak, set apart unto him. There's a sanctifying work that is taken. We are sanctified, made holy before him, before God in Christ. It is a moment, but it is also a process, an event and a process. Now we endeavor to live 
out this truth. Our core identity was once sinner. Our core identity is now saint who has been saved by grace through faith and called by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a different way, right? It is an event and a process. So the adventure, the ups and downs of the Christian life are learning to follow, be more alike, respond in obedience to Jesus. Sanctification is a moment and a lifetime. It's a core identity and it's a daily rhythm of life. But the event, the moment of salvation creates the clear reality of a trajectory of obedience and love. There should be a trajectory. You, know, you guys ever look at like charts and stuff like that, of finances, you know what I mean? And you look at a chart and it's like a scatter chart and there's all these ups and downs and you're like, is there any trend here? It just seems like we're always going up and down. But if you draw a line right? You'd be able to discern the trend if you draw a line through the middle of it all. Life is going to have ups and downs. Some days you feel like super Christian. Some days you feel like Satan. (laughs) But for the believer, by the work of the Holy Spirit, there is a trajectory toward holiness. John's saying these are just tests. There ought to be evidence. And this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. Because when we examine the evidence, there should come assurance of our faith. This is the assurance God has given us. No, I I, I believe rightly about Christ. I desire to follow and obey. I've got ebbs and flows and struggles and moments, but I really want to obey Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And man, sometimes Christians can be the meanest people in the whole world. But somehow, because we're blood brothers and sisters... I find myself loving the brethren, loving the church and wanting to serve them. This is joy. This is assurance. This is the evidence that we've been born again so that we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in doubt. We don't have to live in the horror of the low points. We can look up at the joy of our salvation. Now, Let's think then, because I confess, maybe you're not in this, I, I, I sometimes ask myself, is this all real? Am I really born again? Let's look at a few reasons that we sometimes doubt our salvation, just very quickly. I find myself sometimes doubting my salvation when I'm living in sin, a lack of obedience. We use that phrase when two unmarried people are living together and having sex usually. They're living in sin. But there's other ways that you can live in sin. I'm not living in sin that way. I just want to clarify that. (laughs) But there are other ways that we can persist in sin, willful, continual disobedience. It's not God's will for us. When I find myself continuing in willful disobedience, whether it's unforgiveness or some sort of impurity or some sort of greed or some sort of just unwillingness to do what Christ is calling me to do, sometimes I wonder... Am I really born again? A lack of obedience can cause doubt. Living for self can cause doubt. A lack of love, right? When we look at the needs around us and we just, we just turn on them. Sometimes it's hard not to do that because the needs can be overwhelming. And we live in like the least neediest place in the world, 
right? I was talking to my friend, that pastor from Uganda, Pastor Peter, and like, he lives in one of the neediest places in the world. And part of the evidence of his faith is that he is radically aware of those needs and desperately intentional on meeting them, ministering to them as Christ leads. But when we're living for self, consumed with self in a selfish way, there's a lack of love being the concern for other. Remember, we talked about the definition of agape love, putting others before ourselves. Sometimes when we're living selfishly, it causes one to wonder, am I really born again? Other times it's believing in lies. Here's a lack of faith, believing in lies. The enemy would rejoice over nothing more than for the believer to be insecure in his or her salvation. And so he'll always be planting lies in our hearts and our minds that pertain to that. That's why it is so important that we read the Bible all the time. Because how do we combat the lie? With the truth. And our culture is a purveyor of lies. Not everything that comes from culture is a lie, but a whole lot of it is, right? We watch shows that are based on lies, false identity, false assumptions about God, false truths about relationship, moral relativity. We are always soaking in all these lies and their pretty wrappings. And for the Christian who does not have the word of Christ dwelling richly in them, it's easy sometimes to begin to believe lies about our identity in Christ, about how we ought to behave, about even who Jesus is and his saving work, a lack of faith. And here's what happens. If because of living in sin or living for self or believing lies, if we're kept in a state of doubt, then we're constantly stuck in this place of introspection. And that is not the place to live. There are times for introspection in the presence of the Holy Spirit with the word of God, where we ask, what is going on here? What lie am I believing? What sin is going on? But but when it's always about what we want to do, willful disobedience, what we want to have, a lack of love, and missing what God has done for us in Christ. We get stuck in this place of introspection. Am I saved? Maybe I'm not saved. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. And the enemy is fine to just step back at that point and just watch us sweat it out. What that does is robs us of the joy of the Christian life, arrests us in our spiritual growth, and paralyzes us in mission. The remedy is not to look inward, but to look upward and what God has done for us in Christ. The remedy to living for sin is to look up and realize God is right and all that he says and all that he claims and all that he calls us to do. The remedy of living for self is to look up and say, God is great. I'm not. So culture wants to tell you, huh? especially you millennials, you are great and you can do no wrong. God is great. I'm not great. So I'm called to live for God, not live for self. And part of living for God is living for others, caring for others and meeting their needs. The remedy to believing lies is to believe that God is 
good. The original lie was, God is not good. God is mean and wants to withhold something good from you, Eve. And the original lie is a continual lie. God is not good. What happened to you is unfair. If God was good, that wouldn't happen. But if God is so good, why'd your daughter die of cancer? What is the remedy for that? To look inward? No. To look outward at culture and say, well, what, is, what does culture say about this sort of suffering? No, the only remedy is through the word of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit to look upward and to believe what scriptures say, that God is good. Even when my life is bad, even when everything goes wrong, God is good. And in this, believing that God is right, not me, not us, God is great, not me, not us. And God is good even when life hurts. We find great assurance. And so just expect Satan and expect him to use culture to always come against those three great declarations of faith. God is right, God is great, God is good. He'll always be coming against those things. Because if we start to slip into those things and our self-centeredness, then we begin to doubt our faith. And then we lose our joy. We lose our joy. You know, it's God's will for you, his sons, his daughter, to have joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy in the Lord. And then we get stunted in our growth. And listen, the Christian life, there's so much opposition to it that if you're not growing, you're shrinking. It's like being in a fast-moving river. If you're not swimming upstream, you're going downstream. If your growth is stunted, then it's only a matter of time until we find ourselves backsliding. Can I get a witness, an honest witness? Man, I've been there, I know that. If I'm not intentionally endeavoring to grow in the Lord through the declaration that he's great and worthy of my life and my attention and my adoration and my obedience, I get self-absorbed, introspective, self-centered, and there comes the drift. So, I'm going to wrap it up and we're not going to get to the next two verses. We'll, do those, we'll deal with those next week because I've gone on for so long already. But I will finish with this. These tests are real and these tests are hard. The easiest one is a doctrinal test, a faith test, believing right. The behavior part is a great challenge. That's why John hit it. Your faith is not only particular, it is evidential. And so what are we to do when we've gone through the book of 1 John and we find ourselves not quite measuring up to the call that the Christian will practice righteousness, not quite measuring up to the call that the Christian will love others self-sacrificially? Well, there's only one or two options. One option is you're not a Christian. You haven't passed the test. There's not discernible growth in righteousness. There's not an other-centered growth in love. And there's a real possibility. You've got to go back and look at the doctrinal test. Am I really putting my full weight and belief and faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for me? There's a possibility that you're not a Christian. We talked about last week how over 25% of our church says, I've been a Christian since I was born. That is profoundly theologically problematic as we discussed last week. 
Jesus said that in the church, there will be tares among the wheat. Jesus said that when he returns, there are going to be those who run up to him and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And they'll say, but we did Christian stuff. And he'll say, you were never a Christian. If you're not passing the doctrinal and behavioral tests, it's only right. And it's part of the goal of the book that you would ask yourself, am I truly in the faith? It is not an uncommon experience for people to attend church for years and think they're Christians and to have never been born again through repentance of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said it would be like that in the church. Don't let it be like that with you. The other possibility, and this was a possibility with me much through the book or the reality with me much through the book is where I'm not measuring up. It's not that I'm not a Christian. I'm, I'm sure of that. It said I wasn't always walking like a Christian. That's become clear in the study of 1 John. So for those that aren't a Christian, they need to get saved. The text for them is an invitation to salvation. For those of us that are Christians but have been walking in disobedience and it becomes evidence when those moral behavioral tests are held up against us, then we need to get right. Right? Then we get that. You can be saved and still need to get right. Maybe First John for you is being the call to get right in growth and holiness. Love for others. Other-centered. Care for others. For you, the text is not an invitation. The text is a rebuke. That's what it's been for me. And I'm so thankful for that. I am so thankful for that. I am so excited to grow in holiness. I am more excited than I've been in years to obey Jesus and to love you and to be loved by you. This is what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in our midst. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for helping us with that. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for revealing these things in all sorts of different ways. And Lord, maybe there's some here today for whom the invitation, the text is an invitation. They need to put their faith in you, repent of their sins, and be born again. Thank you, God, for those that would do that right now by saying, God, I trust what you did for me in Jesus, and I want to be yours. I repent of my sins. I turn to you and ask that you forgive me. Thank you that you'll flood them with grace and mercy and make them new. Do that in this place. Do that in our community. But also do this. For those of us that haven't been walking right, where when we read the tests, it's kind of scary. Give us grace to repent. Give us grace to obey. Help us to follow you. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of so great a salvation. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for sinners once and for all to bring us to the Father. Let that be real and wonderful in our lives.